I'm ready to go. <laughs> Are you ready this morning? Yes. Now listen, let me preface our time by saying this is a tough, tough passage. And you know when the Lord gave me this passage? December of last year. Whenever we get the PowerPoint word for the year, all the verses are in place before the year ever begins. This was not planned for November of 2020, but it is perfect for November of 2020. And to God be the glory, uh, he is in control. So open your Bibles, go to Matthew, turn left about six books and you'll land in Nahum. It's right after Micah. And we're going to look at verses one through 11. Now, let me give you a little background, set the context so we can understand just how valuable this is to us today. Now, Jonah and the book of Nahum have a direct relationship with one another. And Jonah 3, 5 to 10 gives us history about 150 or so years before Nahum was written. We're told in 3, 5 to 10 that the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, lay aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, which is the apparel and the position for mourning. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if the Lord will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their what? Their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Aren't you glad our God is merciful? Yeah. Now listen this morning. One thing we need to understand. I hear this over and over and over whenever there's something heavy to be discussed. And that is, you know, people don't come to church to hear something heavy. They want to feel better about themselves. They want to go home feeling good. Listen, sometimes this book will slap you around a little bit. <laughs> Amen? Sometimes it will convict you. Sometimes it'll change your course, change your thinking, heal your emotions, lift you above the circumstances. That's what this book does. And listen, a lot of times we hear people talking about, you know, why are you talking about wrath? Why are you mentioning the judgment of God? Well, first of all, because it is on the horizon, even at the door, the tribulation is about to break forth on the earth. And let me just remind you, what we just read came on the heels of probably the shortest sermon ever preached. Remember Jonah, the reluctant prophet? Yeah. The one who didn't want to go to the Ninevites because they were such a wicked, evil, and oppressive people. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But God wanted Nineveh to hear a sermon from Jonah. Do you remember what the sermon was? It's a shorty. You're not getting a shorty today, by the way, so don't get your hopes up. But you know what his sermon was? 40 days and yet Nineveh shall be overthrown, period. That was it. That was the whole sermon. 40 days and yet Nineveh shall be overthrown. What happened? From the king to the lowliest of servants, the whole city repented. 
Now remember, we're told that Nineveh is three days journey in length. Now today, we don't live in a pedestrian society where people walk everywhere they go, but most of the transportation in that time was either by cart, back of an animal, or simply walking. So the average person can walk about 20 miles per day in this day. Back then, I'm guessing they probably could walk 25. Well, if it's three days journey in length, that means the city was 75 miles long. Obviously, there's a lot of people there. What happened? That message of the impending judgment of God caused everyone from the king all the way down to everybody in between the lowest servant and him to repent of their sins and pray. Perhaps God will relent of this disaster that he has told us is coming. God saw what they did. God responded and he relented. Now, that revival lasted over 100 years, somewhere between 100 and 150 years. Now, Nahum wrote to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, during that time, after Jonah's preaching, the great revival and all that had happened. And at the time of his writing, King Hezekiah would be king over Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel would already have been dismantled, basically. And the sad part is about this revival is that it had come to an end and the Assyrians had reverted to their heinous and old ways. Now, therefore, Nahum writes to them a word from the Lord that their actions have been seen in heaven and God's wrath was about to rain down on them. Now, the second thing I want to point out this morning or draw your attention to outside of the fact that there was a revival is that everything, say everything, everything, everything prophetic in nature in the book of Nahum has been fulfilled. Everything. It all happened. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. So you may be wondering, so what does Nahum have to say to us today since it's all been fulfilled? Thank you for asking. Here's my answer. <laughs> Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not what? Change. Do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Nahum is about the character of God, not just the actions of God against the Assyrian capital. Nahum is about God's care and love for his people, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has called his chosen. And since the Lord does not change and is the same, according to Hebrews, remember Jesus is God. Amen. He's the second member of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the truth of the matter is they are unchanging. And therefore, the application from Nahum about the unchanging character of God for us today in November of 2020 is this. A country and people that had repented and had experienced the mercy and grace of God had turned from God and begun to oppress and afflict the chosen people of God think maybe there's something that we might apply from this letter today. Now, what were the Assyrians doing? They killed children. They killed children without mercy. They beheaded many of their captors. When they would capture a town, all the young men and women, all the teenagers, all the adolescents, they would throw alive into a fire. They skinned alive and hung on the walls of the city the skins of all the leaders of that particular city or nation that they conquered. Leading Nahum to write in chapter three, verse one, woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. In other words, whoever they, wherever they go, everybody dies. Now, I submit to you this morning 
that the unchanging God is watching what's happening in California. Hello? The unchanging God is watching what's happening in California. He is watching what's happening to his church in California. I can assure you, even though we see various numbers reported on abortion, God knows exactly how many children have been killed in their mother's womb, not just in California, not just in the United States, but around the world. He knows all and sees all. And while Nahum is history to us, God's nature hasn't changed. And therefore, we can look at this and come to a place of understanding as to how we are to make our way through this season we are in. Now, as we look at the opening verses of this very ominous prophecy against a people who had tasted the goodness of God, turned from God, began to oppress the people of God, let me remind us of our title, that no matter, through our title, that no matter what is going on in the world, no matter how much the government tries to impose itself upon the church, because we are in Christ, we are, and can bear this title, here it is, the undefeated. Amen. We are the undefeated. Amen. Now, we need to remember what we say all the time when oppression or affliction comes our way, and that is God is in control. Do you know why we say that? God's in control. Amen. Is he in control during this pandemic? Is he in control if Biden wins? Yes. <laughs> he is completely in control all the time. And listen, he's in control right now, and we are God's people. We are the undefeated because it was foretold of us that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. Amen. And therefore, we are the undefeated. Now, listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. He told the church at Corinth, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence, the treasure is the salvation we possess in Christ, that the excellence of the power of God and not of us, maybe of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on what? Every side. Every side. There's trouble everywhere, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, or some even die, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested where? In our mortal flesh. Now, listen, I've said this before, it bears repeating this morning. Christians die for their faith sometimes died all around the world and all through the centuries. There are Christians who are martyred for their belief in Jesus Christ. But let me remind you, there is not one martyr in heaven who wishes they were still on earth. They all are glad to be home. And someday we're going to go home too. Now I got to confess, I don't want to be a martyr. I want to go in that twinkling of an eye thing. Amen. Just boom, there we're in heaven. Uh, close our eyes or blink and next thing you know, there's Jesus. That works for me. How about you? We like to call it the group plan. We want to be in the group plan. Amen. Now, listen, God being in control doesn't mean we'll never be oppressed. It doesn't mean that we'll never be afflicted. But because we're God's friends, we can be hard pressed from every direction, yet we're not going to be crushed. Now, because he will never leave us nor forsake us, 
even within the sovereign will of God, when he chooses to allow his children to be struck down, they cannot be destroyed. Because the second death has no power over them. And even then, they're amongst the undefeated. So let's see what God has to say to a nation and its leaders who had experienced the grace and the mercy of God and turned away from him and began to afflict and oppress God's chosen people. We'll start with verses 1 through 6 of Nahum chapter 1. Did everybody find it? Stand and read with me, please. Nahum 1, 1 through 6. Verse 1. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heavens heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Everybody got the warm fuzzies? <laughs> Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it is we can learn about you that will help us in the here and now. So Lord, I pray this morning that you'd speak to our hearts and give us ears to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, the first thing we need to point out is that the word burden would better be translated as oracle. And I say that because an oracle has a divine attachment to it. It is something that God spoke, that God inspired to be said. And this oracle that Nahum was given is begin, or begins with, rather, something positive. There's not a whole lot that's positive in the book of Nahum, but he begins with a reminder that God is a jealous God. Now, normally we'll attach negativity to the word jealousy, but listen, God has no negative attributes. So if he's jealous, it's a good jealousy, right? Now, this is presented to us multiple times in the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, 12 to 16, we'll find one mention, which is a quote actually from the giving of the law, Take heed to yourselves, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice." And you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. God is against idolatry. Yes, right. You shall have no other gods before me, he said, as he was giving his commandments. And they're not suggestions. Amen. They are commandments yet even today. Amen. Amen. Now, J. Vernon McGee said, we often try and make a distinction between human jealousy and divine jealousy. And he said, they're actually a lot more alike. And then he made the point, and his point, it was twofold in its application. And the first is this, listen, a good spouse does not want their spouse in an intimate personal relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Right. 
I mean, hello, right? No spouse wants that. No spouse wants to see their mate in an extramarital affair. Why? Because an extramarital affair can kill a marriage. And rejecting God and choosing idols can kill the love relationship between one and God, or even the desire for that relationship with him. Now, the other side of that coin of God being a jealous God is that he avenges those who mistreat and abuse his people. He is jealous. He has a love for his people, and he defends them, and he is for them, and he is with them, and he avenges them with fury. He takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves his wrath. The word indignation is the Hebrew word za'av. It means wrath. He reserves his wrath for his enemies. Aren't you glad we're his friends? Yes. And he has not appointed us to wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. The Lord is slow to anger. Amen. The New Testament uses one word to describe that phrase. It's called long-suffering. God is slow to anger. I'm thankful that God is long-suffering. I'm thankful that he got, didn't get tired of me, but he put up with me until he saved me and bought me with the blood of his own son. I'm, I'm thankful for the long-suffering. I'm thankful that God is slow to anger with Gavin Newsom. I'm thankful that God is slow to anger with Nancy Pelosi. I'm not as thankful with Gavin. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. I'm thankful that God is slow to anger. Listen. He's great in power. Yes. He is great in power. He commands the whirlwind and the storm. He rides the clouds. He rebukes the seas. He dries up rivers. He wilts the flowers of the field at his command. He makes hills melt and mountains quake. And he can do so on a global scale simply with the word of his mouth. Listen, this is who we're talking about. I don't think we spend enough time talking about the majestic power of Almighty God. I don't think we see all the value because we don't study it often enough of El Shaddai, God Almighty, God who says, let there be light and there is light. Now listen, on the fourth day, he created the lights of the firmament, but on the first day, he said, let there be light. So how can there be light when he hasn't created the lights in the sky yet? Because he is light. And if he says, let there be light, when there are no lights, there can be light. And if he says, every mountain moved out of place, that's exactly what's going to happen. We're told here, he pours out his fury like fire. He throws down the rocks of the earth and flattens the mountains. Let me ask you again, aren't you glad we're his friends? Now, remember, the Lord was speaking to Assyria about their persecution, in essence, of Judah. They were constantly trying and plotting to attack and destroy Jerusalem. And therefore, we need to recognize this point that we've already actually said, but we're going to put it in a summary form. And it's just this. Listen, in a state like California, we have seen great revivals in California. Yes. Remember the Jesus movement that is still impacting our country and world today? Where did it start? In this city. In Costa Mesa, California, we have seen great moves of God in this state and in our country. And listen, here's what we need to remember this morning. While the church can be oppressed and afflicted, we can never be defeated. Amen. The church can be oppressed and afflicted, we can never be defeated. Now let me pause for a moment because I've heard this question a thousand times. That's hyperbole, but I've heard it maybe 900. <laughs> can a Christian be demon-possessed? No. 
No. A Christian cannot be demon-possessed because light and darkness cannot cohabitate, and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. A Christian cannot be possessed by the devil. A Christian can be oppressed by the devil and his minions, the demons. A Christian can be harassed by the devil. Satan roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And listen, I think we need to recognize something about the history, not just of the church, but of the world. Satan hates the Jews. God prophesies in the garden to Satan. It's the first prophecy in the Bible. And he prophesied to Satan, to the serpent, he said that the seed of a woman will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel or crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Well, Satan is smart. As a matter of fact, we're told he is perfect in wisdom. In other words, he had complete wisdom until pride was found in his heart. And the truth of the matter is, he fully understood what that prophecy meant. Now listen, the woman does not bear the seed in the procreative process. We understand that, right? It's the man that bears the seed. If you have any questions about this, ask Pastor Dave. I don't want to go any further into it. But listen, there are two different schools of thought regarding the interpretation of that prophecy to Satan about the seed of the woman crushing his head. And I think they're both right. Some say the seed of the woman is speaking about Israel because Revelation talks about the woman and the seed that came from her. Some say that's talking about a supernatural conception. Was Jesus supernaturally conceived? Yes. Did he come from Israel? Yes. So can it speak about both? Yes. I think it does, absolutely. We can look back historically and see that that is true. And therefore, because Satan understood the prophecy, he tried to kill the male children of the Israelites under Pharaoh. When he heard there was one born king of the Jews, what did Herod do? He killed every male child under two years old. Why didn't he kill the females? Because he knew what was prophesied. He will crush your head. That's male of the two genders. Amen. Thought I'd throw that in there. Male and female, he created them. That's the end of the list, right? Now, so he tried to kill the male children of the Israelites through Pharaoh. He tried to kill the one born king of the Jews to Joseph and Mary through Herod, and he failed at both. He's tried to eliminate, therefore, all the Jews since then under people like Hitler and others, and he has failed every time. The Jews are back in the land. The land and the Jews are flourishing. The Jewish population is growing year by year by year. Just last year, for the first time in its 72-year history, the population of Jews in Israel surpassed the population of Jews in America. Amen. Listen, Satan doesn't just hate the Jews. He hates the church, too. Why? Because they both share the title of God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people by faith. They are God's chosen people by birth. Let me also pause here because there's something that's floating around today called dual covenant theology that the Jews can be saved by fulfilling the works of the law where the church and Christians have to be saved by being born again. That's nonsense and I'll tell you why. Jesus had an encounter with the teacher of Israel in John chapter 3. He said to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know? that you have to be born again. And he said, I'm telling you, Nick, unless a man be born again, there's no way he can inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, the Jews can only be saved by Jesus, Hallelujah. by belief in Jesus. After all, he's still the king of the Jews. Amen. 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 Now, Satan tried to kill off the church through the leading Jews initially. 
Then he tried to kill the church through compromise in the age of Constantine, when in a sense, according to Revelation chapter 2, the church married the world and became idolatrous. He tried to kill the church through the Muslim Crusades. He tried to kill the church through keeping the Bible only in Latin. And those who tried to translate the Bible into English were killed by people who claimed to be part of the church themselves. And yet here we are today, totally undefeated. Amen. The church is thriving. The church is growing. Don't let anyone tell you or any of this nonsense we see floating around on social media or through the media nights that we see today that the church is shrinking. God is still saving souls and he's saving them all around the world. Do you know where the church is growing the fastest on the planet right now? It's growing in Iran faster than anywhere else in the world, a place where you can be executed for converting from Islam to Christianity. And yet what's happening? The church is growing. Why? Because God is still unwilling that any should perish, but that all would come to church. No, that all would come to what? Repentance, a change in thought that yields itself or manifests itself in a change of lifestyle. Now, like Israel, the church hasn't replaced Israel. Israel is Israel and the church is the church. Replacement theology is a lie from the devil. Amen. God is not done with the nation of Israel. The Bible teaches all over the place that he was going to call the people back in the land and they would be the Jews whom he himself had scattered. And listen, here's the interesting thing. In Ezekiel, the Lord said every single day that the Jews didn't live within the geographic boundaries of Israel, my name was profane. I'm bringing them home for my name's sake. I'm bringing them home because they're my people and I don't want people of the world saying, what are you doing as a chosen people of God outside of the land that I gave you? And therefore God brought them back. God is in control. The Jews are still God's chosen people by birth and the church is God's chosen people by faith. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, remember Romans 11, a great chapter on the relationship between the church and Israel where Paul said in 16 to 18, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, speaking of Israel, so are the branches, speaking of the church. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Listen, what we believe is founded in Judaism. What we believe is founded on the Old Testament. Listen, the Old Testament, there was a pastor, a just awful, awful thing that he said about a year ago. He said, or a little over a year ago, he said, we as New Testament Christians need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. No, thank you. The Old Testament is still being fulfilled. The Old Testament is just as alive as the new. The Old Testament is happening all around us. And the only thing that was fulfilled was the law of the Old Testament. And the one who fulfilled that law is Jesus. And he's the God of both Testaments. So don't listen to that kind of nonsense. But listen, I'm going to go ahead and get back to the message now. The point is, we may be oppressed and we may be afflicted just like Jesus. But just like Jesus, death has no power over us. The grave couldn't hold him because the grave had no right to him. The wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned, so death couldn't hold him. So early in the morning on the first day of the week, man, he's up and out of the grave. The stone was rolled away, not so he could get out, but so we could look in and know that he indeed is alive and alive forevermore. 
And listen, all efforts to destroy Israel and the church are going to be met with the wrath of God, the indignation of God. Don't believe me? Ask Egypt. Ask Assyria. Ask Babylon. Ask Medo-Persia. Ask Greece. Ask the Roman Empire what God thinks about messing with his chosen people. Now, am I saying that Gavin Newsom better watch it? Is this being recorded? Listen, here's what I'm saying. Listen to the last verse of the oracle of Nahum, the Elkishite, given to him by God. He says to Nineveh, your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? You know what the Lord said to Nineveh? You have breached the point of no return. You have no interest in turning back to me. Your wickedness is impacting everyone. And everywhere you go, your wickedness passes continually and death travels with you. Your wound is severe to the degree that it has no healing. Now listen, the Assyrians had become so wicked and entrenched in evil that they had no desire for repentance. And there are those who get so far from God that they fail to heal his warnings and they cross that point of no return. This is my concern for Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom has become so enamored with power that his position affords him that he doesn't recognize that the fight against the church is the fight against God. We need to pray for his salvation. Now listen this morning. There's a lot of talk. I had someone tell me something in between services that he had a friend that uh, is a doctor in Iowa. And he said, you know, just out of curiosity, this is a doctor in Iowa who said, I went to the CDC website to find out what they were reporting about my town. They said 300 people had died in my town of COVID-19. The doctor said, you know, many, you know how many have actually died? Wow. Not one. He said they reported X number of cases in our hospital. You know how many COVID cases we have in our hospital? None. Not one. You know how many positive test cases we've had in our city in Iowa? They reported thousands. You know how many they had? Zero. Not one. Listen this morning. This morning, Orange County Health Authority website. This morning's statistics. You ready for this? Yes. So far, there have been 1,483 COVID deaths in Orange County. Since February, 1,483. 40% of them were people over 85 years of age. Another 30% of them were people over 75 years of age. Now, I say that for this reason. Every one of those deaths was tragic. Yes. Amen? Every one of those deaths was tragic. But what's that tell us? That tells us there is a major element of our culture that is vulnerable to COVID-19. Listen, just like the flu. Do we watch out for the elderly? Absolutely. Do we watch out for the elderly during flu season? Absolutely. Should we watch out for the elderly now? Yes, because they are the most vulnerable to the coronavirus and the SARS-2 COVID-19, as it's technically called. Now, listen, there have been 60,000 total confirmed positive test cases in Orange County in a population of 3 million people. We've heard from day one that you can be asymptomatic. In other words, have no symptoms whatsoever and be tested positive for the coronavirus. So 
The CDC, every government official reports openly and has all along that there are far more people who have it and don't know than the positive test case results that we have. So therefore, of the 60,000 documented known cases in Orange County, the actual number of COVID-19 positive test cases is probably triple that. There's probably been 180,000 people who have COVID-19 in Orange County of the 3 million population. But let's just take the hard numbers. Let's take the reported numbers. 60,000 people, 1,483 have died as of this morning, this day, according to the Orange County Health Authority. That's less than a 2% fatality rate amongst known cases. If you add the more likely statistic, let's just say you double it. That number drops below 1% fatality rate of COVID-19, and the vast majority, again, being amongst the vulnerable. Now, listen, let's move this out into total population of Orange County. Again, there are 3 million people in Orange County, a little over, right? There have been 1,483 fatalities that are directly related to COVID-19. Do you know what percentage of the population in Orange County, therefore, has died from COVID-19 since this thing began? Four one-thousandths of 1%. That's the fatality rate of the general population in Orange County. So let's shut everything down, destroy family-owned businesses, close hundreds of restaurants and businesses in order to slow this thing down. Does that make any sense? No, that tells us that there is an agenda and the government is behind it. Listen, Harvard just issued a report this morning. Just this morning, well, actually yesterday. I happened to read the report this morning. They said, it is a low probability of uh, contacting the coronavirus while flying on an airplane. Flying on an airplane is a low risk environment. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Listen, I've traveled all over the world, flown long 24 hour flights. Anybody who's been with us on a plane to South Africa knows it takes 24 hours to get there. That's a long time on an airplane. And I gotta say, I feel comfortable with saying probably 35 to 40% of the time, I got sick. Yeah. Why? Because I was on an airplane and somebody else was sick. And yet here they are saying, because of the filtration system and mask, we're on an airplane, an airplane is a low risk category to sit for hours, shoulder to shoulder to people next to you. There's no danger there but don't go to church because church people is stupid and they don't know how to wash their hands or not touch their face is what is obviously being implied. And listen this morning, just I know some of you are wearing masks and that's wonderful and I'm glad for that. And if that makes you feel more comfortable, that is the most important thing or if it protects you, there is a, an element of protection. You know what the difference between aerosol and airborne is? The CDC has said, the World Health Organization has said, COVID-19 is not airborne, but it is aerosol. Aerosol means that there has to be particulates of liquid that spray that get on your eye or face or tongue or something that transmit it. But it's not, you can sit next to people and they breathe in and out and you're not gonna get it because it's not airborne, it's aerosol. It can be expelled through a sneeze or a cough or something like that. And you know, so they said, well, you know, the airplanes are a low risk situation because of the filtration system, which doesn't work. <laughs> and everybody's wearing a mask, which doesn't work. Right. Now, let me just say this. There's people, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's comical, but it's not. People are making their masks at home yeah. out of medical grade 
materials, of course. <laughs> now, let me tell you something. You know, there's a difference between uh, uh, an infection and uh, a virus. A virus is made out of microbes. Microbes are smaller than the holes in your mask that you're breathing through. Do you know why your glasses fog up when you wear a mask? Because the air is going this way. It's not being filtered through the mask. It's coming out all the sides. And listen, there's one way to test if a mask is working or not, and that is, can you smell anything? If you can smell something, if you can smell through your mask, your mask isn't keeping out all the microbes that make up a virus. It is impossible. Now, some people are saying, wear the N95 mask. Do you know that the N95 mask that they wear in hospitals only protects the inhale, not the exhale? Do you know that? It only protects the person wearing it. If the person wearing it has COVID-19, they're spreading it right out through the exhale hole in their mask. Listen, we've been sold a bill of goods. Why? They're trying to shut down the church. Why? Because the church stands against globalism. They want to shut down the church because the church is the only voice that is saying, hey, there's coming a world leader who is going to monitor all commerce, who is going to tell us who we can worship, and he's going to kill us if we don't worship him. There's only one voice today, and it is the Christian church, and we are going to remain until Jesus comes to get us as the undefeated. Amen. Amen. Now, let's, what time is it? I almost said, <laughs> what day is it? <laughs> We've had a lot of asides here today, so let's, let's breeze through these last uh, verses. Verse 7, the Lord is good. That's worth more than that. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust in him. Now, here's what I want to point out. In between the Lord's announcement of impending judgment and the Lord's description of the judgment that was impending in the balance of the chapter, verse 8 and beyond, we have this wonderful parenthesis written directly to Judah. Yeah, the Assyrians are horrid, and they are killing people in ways that are indescribable. And the Lord says, I'm good. I am your defense fortress. That's what a stronghold is. I am your defense fortress in a day of trouble. Now, a little more history about the city of Nineveh. In Genesis 10, 8 through 12, we're told in the table of nations that Cush begot Nimrod. Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was like a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom, Nimrod's kingdom, was, what's the first city name? Babel or Babel. Eric, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar or Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. What happened at Babel? They tried to build a tower to reach the heavens and reach heaven apart from God. So what did God do? He confused their language and scattered them all over the earth. And that's when what we call races were born, people who looked alike and spoke or had a shared language. We need to remember there's only one race, and it's the human race. Amen. Amen. There's only one skin color, and there's varying tones of that one skin color. Some have different uh, elements of melanin that uh, some of it's uh, based on environment. Some of it is just because everybody that they were separated with was, uh, looked a lot like them. You know, it's just like parents today. Your kids are going to look like you. Thankful my kids look like my wife, and they don't look like me, and my kids are thankful for that too. Now, 
I say this because that tells us that the level of idolatry in Nineveh was like another that of Babel. And therefore, we can know that the Ninevites were steeped in idolatry, and therefore the attacks on Israel were demonically driven. Now, historically, King Shalmaneser in 859 to 824 BC made Nineveh his base of operations for his military engagements. And during his reign is when Israel first came into contact with Nineveh. And he actually wrote uh, some things that were uh, recorded by historians, secular historians. And he wrote that he fought a coalition of kings of Aram, and he included Ahab, the Israelite. He also wrote that he received tribute from Yehu, the son of Omri, who is pictured actually on a black obelisk or a monument to Shalmaneser. And these events aren't mentioned in the Bible, but secular historians record the interactions between Israel and Nineveh. The Bible talks about Azariah, king of Judah, paying tribute uh, to the Assyrian kingdom. Menachem, king of Israel, did the same according to 2 Kings 15, 14 to 23. So here's the point. In the midst of a time when God's people were being financially plundered through overtaxing and demonically driven attacks on them, God says to Judah through Nahum, the Lord is good. He is a defense fortress in the day of trouble. Now listen, I reminded first service, I'll remind you that paying taxes is biblical. And I got about the same response <laughs> at first service. I would never say that in April, but it is biblical. Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Amen. Romans 13 talks about the same thing. Now, we live in a time where anything but Christianity and Judaism is viewed as acceptable. And we are the ones who are enemies of the advancement of the new world order. And they're right, that is true. Now, while paying taxes is biblical, funding abortion with tax money is not. Funding our enemies with tax money is not. And in these troubling times, I believe the Lord wants us to remember verse 7 because Nahum is about who God is, not just who is being written to. He's good. He is a fortress in times of trouble to those who trust him. And what he was to Judah, he is to us because he does not change. Now, here's our point and here's our second reminder. Troublesome times are the best times to trust and not doubt or fear. Troublesome times are the best times to trust and not doubt or fear. Now, that's an obvious point, but we also recognize it's obvious that we should trust and not doubt and fear all the time, right? Amen. Yeah. But isn't it during troublesome times when doubt and fear try and creep yeah. in? Yeah. You know, good times where you say, oh, thank the Lord for these blessings. Thanks, Lord. Thank the Lord for my new car, for my house, or my raise, or my job. And it's easy to thank the Lord during those times. Amen? But listen, when things are bleak, when they're dire, that's when the devil tries to creep in. That's when he tries to exploit the moment and our circumstance. And good times is not usually when trust is tested. Troublesome times are when trust is put to the true test. Now, if you remember our theme verse for the whole year and our word for the year being trust, Psalm 37, 3 through 8 reminded us in January, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the Lord, in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Let me pause there for a moment. I don't think that means he gives you everything you want. I think he gives you your wants. He puts desires in you. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as, a noon day, as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Listen close now. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes what? Harm. Only causes harm. Now, we are the undefeated. Right. Oppressions and afflictions are times where trust is crucial. And we need to remember the word of the Lord through Nahum, that he is good. Is he only good in the 8th century B.C.? No, he's good all the time, isn't he? Is he only good to Judah or is he good to CCT? He's good to all of us. Amen. Now, let's wrap it up with 8 through 11. We just got a few minutes left here. I don't want to keep you till dinner. <laughs> but with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Now, what we just read is validated by secular historians and archaeologists. And the balance of the oracle of judgment against Nineveh happened exactly as written. A couple of examples. A historian called uh, Diodorus Siculus wrote in a book, Bibliotheca Historica, that the Assyrian king distributed meats and wine in abundance to his soldiers. And when the Babylonians, Medes, and Greeks came knocking at the door of the city, they were so drunk they were unable to fend them off. He also wrote that the Greek historian Xenophon reported terrifying thunder happened at the time of the attack on Nineveh. Heavy rains from the storm destroyed the sluice gate, the gate that allowed or regulated the amount of water that would flow into the city for drinking and other purposes. And the fortified city was flooded. Archaeologists have also uncovered in Nineveh, where uh, the modern city of Mosul, Iraq, now exists, that there is a two-inch thick layer of ash where Nineveh used to stand, and the temple as well as the palace of Sennacherib, king at the time of its destruction, is covered with ash, and the remains are charred. Now, let me insert a thought here as this list of continued fulfillments is documented by secular and sacred historians and remind us that everything written in the book of Revelation is going to happen just as written. All of it's going to happen. And before that can happen, the rapture has to happen as written as well. Amen? Now, a couple things and we'll wrap it up, possibly. <laughs> Psalm 34, 15 to 17 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the content of Nahum is nothing new. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Now listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 32 to 35. Two days in a row, they encountered a fig tree. The first day he cursed it. The second day, it was dried up by its root. It was figurative for the nation of Israel, unbelieving Israel, that is, national Israel. Jesus said, now learn this parable from the fig tree, the one we encountered two days prior. When its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves, in other words, when it comes back to life, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. 
Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Listen to what he says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now listen, Nineveh is proof that the hard things of the Bible are going to be fulfilled exactly as written. Everything happened, secular historians recorded it. Nineveh not only proves they will be fulfilled, Nineveh proves they will be fulfilled right down to the most minute of details. So let me say this as we conclude. The church is under attack in California in unprecedented ways. We have enjoyed great freedom in our country because it was founded on biblical principles by godly men, by and large. And the truth is we are experiencing things that we have never experienced, even though persecution is not new to the church. It's been present since its very birth. Right here in the great state of California, how many know who Don McClure is? Most of you know Don McClure. Uh, Don's been around since the early days of Calvary. His son, Michael McClure, pastors Calvary Chapel San Jose. He was just last week fined $300,000, and the church was threatened with a restraining order if they ever met on Sunday again. He was summoned and demanded by the court that he appear in court by the Santa Cruz County Court. Why? They were doing what Harvard said it's safe to do on an airplane. They were meeting. They were having church. Now, I want to remind us all, as these things continue, we've seen what's happened with John MacArthur as they continually drag him into court and all these other things. And remember the statistics we talked about earlier. It's real. Yes. People get it. Yes. People have died. The numbers aren't what they say they are, and that's proven time and time again. I mean, we have talked to people personally in the medical industry that have said, who go to this church and others that we've known for years, you know, there's no COVID patients in my hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't seen one. There's nobody that's died in our hospital. And these are, you know, people that we trust the word of. Now, the only way for the gates of Hades not to prevail against the church is for God to protect the church. It has to be the Lord's work. Amen? Amen. And Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God used to be a consuming fire. Yes. Is he? Yes. Is he still a consuming fire today? Yes, he is. And listen, the church has always been under attack, and what we're experiencing is nothing new, even though it's new for us. But if there's one thing we need to remember from our PowerPoint verse, verse 7 this month, it's this, and I'll let you go. Listen, God defending his church is not wishful thinking. It's an immutable fact. God defending his church is not, we don't say, gosh, I hope he takes care of us. I hope he defends us. Listen, immutable means unchangeableness. God doesn't change, right? And he is our defense, right? Yes. And because of him, we shall not be moved, right? right? Therefore, we are the undefeated. And him defending his church is not wishful thinking. It is unchangeable. And God is not just worthy of our worship and praise, though he is. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our trust in him and therefore his word, because the two are inseparable. Now, many in places of political power in our state and others, in our country and others, are conspiring against the Lord. And he said through Nahum that he will make an utter end of their conspiracy and affliction will not arise from them a second time. Now, I pray that the reason affliction does not arise a second time 
from the group of politicians in power in our state is because they get saved. Amen. Amen. Yes. Yes. Did you guys go home? I know I said I'm wrapping up. I didn't say I'm done. I pray that Gavin Newsom comes to know Jesus. And I pray that he has the testimony of Paul that we read about a couple of weeks ago. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches a faith which he once tried to destroy. Listen, he's trying to destroy the church. There's no other way to look at it. That's what's happening. Because you can't say you can riot. You can't say you can protest. You can't say you can fly. You can't say you can go to Costco. You can't say you can go to Walmart. But you can't go to church. And not have an agenda that is inspired by the devil. Well, listen, we might be oppressed and afflicted, but the church cannot be destroyed. And the perilous times in which we now live are prime time for trusting God and not being afraid. Amen. We are the undefeated because God's defense of the church isn't a pipe dream. It's a proven historical fact to all who trust in him. The only thing I can add, and we went over just two minutes, <laughs> is even so, come quickly. Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for giving us the hard stuff too and reminding us of your love for purity and the reality that we're all impure apart from Christ, but you're not willing that any should perish. You want all to come to know you. You want all to come to that place of repentance, a change of mind and life direction. And we thank you, Lord, that we saw this true even with the evil and wicked Ninevites how you went to them first with a message that foretold and gave them a time frame of when judgment was coming. And we saw the result, the repentance and revival that lasted over a century. Well, Lord, we also see the fact that you don't have grandchildren, so to speak, but only sons and daughters. And what happened in a previous generation did not assure the salvation of the next one. And Lord, as it's been well said, the church is only one generation from extinction at all times. We pray, God, and we know that we cannot be defeated. But like Rome, many have chosen to implode and turn from the truths of your word. And we pray, Lord, in this great state of California that the church would stand strong and we would stand on your word. and We would not be moved. And Lord, that we wouldn't be fools either that we would take protective measures to guard those who are weak and vulnerable in this area, just like we do the flu season every year. So, Lord, we pray for Gavin Newsom. We pray for our state legislature. We pray for those who are voting heinous things into law in our country. Those who are seeking to afflict and silence your church as the one voice of reason and truth that any state or country has. And Lord, we pray that they would have the testimony of Paul. They would cease persecution and become a preacher of the righteousness that saves us all. So we pray for our governor. Lord, we also pray for this election coming up. And we ask that you would direct and guide our prayers tonight as we gather. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.